Welcome to Save Your Sorry, the podcast where we tell you about the rise and fall of your favorite or rather least favorite celebrity. I'm your host, Jose. Joining me is my co-host, Katrina Rochelle. Hello. And today is a Katrina episode. Long Ooh. awaited. Ooh. Woo! A little bit more excitement. <laughs> <laughs> so, Katrina, who or what will we be discussing today? Well, we will be talking about somebody who we are both familiar with, but just based off of when they were popular to when they have departed from this earth, you will probably think, hmm, why now? And the question, no. The answer to that question is because I said so. Oh, love it. So today I will be talking about a very polarizing person. They are no longer with us, but that does not mean that they didn't do their fair share of shit before departing this earth, like I said before. I will give you a big hint with some slightly reworked lyrics that certainly apply to them. Are you ready? But it's not their lyrics, okay? Is it? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just trying to clear up. Trust me, when I say it, he'll get it. Alrighty. He's a very kinky guy. The kind you don't take home to my dust. I just put him on my list. That's so funny. Ooh, maybe we should do Battle of the Rick James episodes. Oh, but that's well, funny. Rick James. <laughs> well, yes, we're doing Rick James, but that's funny that you you put him on your list. Yeah, just like a few days ago. That's so weird. Okay. Well, we will be talking about the singer, Rick James. Bitch. Uh, yeah. Now, Rick James. Well, actually, before we get into the thick of it, uh, I, you are familiar with Rick James, are you not? Yeah, I'm familiar. I feel like the Chappelle show, really, though. Is... Okay, so you're more of a Ch- Chappelle show person who's more, like, introduced to him. Any music besides maybe, like, the huge, hugest hit of them all? No, just the huge hits. All right, all right. Now, Rick James was born James Ambrose Johnson Jr. in Buffalo, New York, on February 1st, 1948. That makes That's him so long ago. Oh, yeah. He's an older. He's an oldie. He was born to parents Mabel Sims and James Ambrose Sr. He was the third of eight children. His home life was not perfect. His father was a mechanic, but also was an alcoholic, and he left the family when Rick was a young child. I hear around maybe even 10 years old. This left Rick's mom to raise all her children in both parental roles as the mother and the father. Now, even at a young age... And just so you know, even though I just said that he he was born with the name James, I'm going to always refer to James as Rick James. Rick always marched to the beat of his own drum. He wasn't always the best with doing schoolwork. He wasn't always the best with being behaved well, but he did love music and he loved his mama. Now, as a way for her to make money for her family, now that she was the only parent in the household, Mother Mabel would run numbers for the mafia. Are you familiar with this uh, term slash job? No. So hopefully what I I correctly grasp from my Googles is that back in the day, the mafia specifically do these like lotteries where anybody and everybody could write down like these three numbers and based off whatever category or whatever they would decide uh, to bet on, whether it be like, the last three numbers of, I don't know, like they said, the stock exchange when it, when it stops or the last three numbers of maybe like this or that, 
you would win money or your money would forfeit to the mafia. And so Mabel's job was apparently, you know, going around to different bars, different places and picking up the numbers for that night. Oh, that's a nice job. I'd like that job. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Until you get in trouble with the motherfucking mafia. (laughs) (laughs) But until then, it's nice. You just you just go around getting money. Yeah. And, you know, it was a little bit of a danger because it wasn't legal at this time. Apparently, Mabel did make a decent living doing this. And Rick was even involved. It turns out that Rick was involved and his job was to pick up the money. So even at a young age, Rick was, whether it was through his own fault or through family, was always involved in something maybe he shouldn't have been. So another thing that their mother really included her children on doing was taking them down to like the jazz clubs, you know, the dancing jazz clubs where everybody in the neighborhood would be. You always hear some live music, everybody playing these live instruments. And, you know, it was bumping in there. And Mabel always took her kids not only so that they could be around music, but they could kind of be cultured and be in the environment that she wanted to be in because uh, apparently Mabel back in the day did want to be like a singer and a dancer. Yeah, it sounds like a loud and happy time. Yeah, and so Rick was really enamored and inspired by this like club scene as well as the different music tastes that his mother introduced him to. So at 15 years old, Rick is, you know, singing in clubs occasionally and singing on the corners, but he decides ultimately school is just not for me. So he drops out. But not only does he drop out, He decides, yes, I do want to pursue music, but I also want to travel the world. I want to see everything. I want to get out of Buffalo. The city isn't really what what it thinks it is. I want to get out of here. And so he decides in order to do that, he lies about his age and joins the Navy Reserve. But Rick and authority slash set schedules are not mixing well with this man. So even though he is in the Navy Reserve and everybody at this time right now we know how much of a big deal that is to enter in the service rick decides yeah i'm gonna stop showing up for work okay so rick stops showing up for uh his weekend reserve duty and eventually they notice his repeated absence and i guess as like a punishment slash just their protocol is during this time this is the vietnam war war happening So if you were not reporting for your reserve duty, you did get changed to active duty. So damn. Exactly. So Rick isn't showing up for his reserve duty. So what happens? He gets uh, switched to active duty and is called to report to the USS Enterprise the next morning or in a couple days or whatever. Rick sees that and is like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. He eventually flees to Canada. In 1964. I would have done the same. Crazy. <laughs> I picture you. I picture you fleeing to Canada and nobody chasing you. <laughs> I'm just like, I got to do this. So I think it is in Toronto, the Toronto area he starts to settle. I think there was like a little incident that brought him closer to the people he ends up getting into a band, but I'm not really going to dive into all that. But essentially he settles into Toronto and he can't go by James Ambrose Johnson Jr. because he's AWOL. He's wanted by the military. So he uh, instead adopts the name Ricky Matthews and eventually it's shaved down to Rick James. Hmm. And then there you have it. He's incorporating his old name into this new persona that he has to take. So this is when Rick James, the name is born 
but not quite the persona at this time. So Rick joins a group called the Minor Birds with future legend Neil Young on the guitar. And the Minor Birds find them a manager named Morley Shellman, who really likes their style, really likes their, their songs and uh, their voices, and basically gets Motown involved, liaisons with them, and gets them a deal with Motown. And they immediately get in the studio and record four songs. As they're recording this song, these songs and they're having fun and everything's coming together, apparently there's like a financial dispute between uh, Morley Shellman, the manager, and the rest of the Minor Birds. And they fire Morley and he's pissed. So as a retaliation, he, for one reason or another, knows about James's AWOL status. So he basically snitches him out. Dirty fucking rat. Tells him basically, you know, I know where this James Ambrose Johnson man is here, blah, blah, blah. Rick James uh, brought in by Motown. And Motown's like, you got all this stuff going on and we can't continue on with this record deal and making music with you until you settle these warrants until you settle this AWOL status you have. And so then Rick James goes back to America, surrenders himself. Through the documentary, because I, I probably should have told you. Well, no, I'll, I'll give it at the end. But basically, I got my sources for a whole bunch of places, but a lot of a chunk of this was from this ad documentary called Bitchin' The Sound and Fury of Rick James from 2021. I saw it on Showtime. And the documentary kind of condenses this part, but when I looked into it, this whole surrender, going into the Navy to settle his warrants thing took a while because apparently he got sentenced, but then he left again. His family had to talk him back into coming to surrender again and then him finishing off his sentence. But, you know, in the documentary, they condense it to he surrenders to the Navy. The Navy sentences him to his punishment, which all in told ends up being one year in the brig. If you don't know, the brig is a military prison uh, to which some people, I guess, who have been in the brig, they describe it as, you know, kind of being worse than other prisons, maybe because of the strictness. Maybe because all the guards are military and they carry assault rifles. I don't know shit. Yeah, I wonder, like, why surrender again if you're going to leave? Just stay in Canada. It's Rick James, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. I think, uh, I, I don't know. He just, I guess, kept getting scared, but he kept getting talked into coming back because I guess he finally understood that if you want to have a future in music and you want to be able to travel America, let alone anywhere else safely, you're going to have to deal with this. Yeah. So he serves this year after he gets released, he, to get himself together, he recoups back at the place he knows best, which is his home with his mother in Buffalo. So after a short amount of time, he gets a job at Motown but it's as a session writer. I hear that he still wasn't using James Ambrose Johnson Jr. He was using a different alias, but he's working at Motown as a session writer and a arranger and, you know, composer, various things for other artists at Motown, but not really for himself. And as he's doing that, he's getting tired. He's getting tired of not breaking through as an artist for himself and doing all this for other people and he talks to a friend who also was playing guitar maybe in a band or was also a fellow writer his name was Gregory he talks to Gregory 
and they decide let's move to California to really break into the industry. So Rick and Gregory leave. When Rick moves to California, that is when friends and family say he really embraced and really became Rick James, the persona that we know. So in the 70s, Rick was in his fair share of bands. At this time, he was in a band called Salt and Pepper, not the rap group Salt and Pepper. But That's what I should ask the Salt and Pepper. <laughs> no, this was a like a rock soul band, Salt and Pepper. It just had black and white people, you know, Salt Pepper. Oh. That's funny. <laughs> he also was in a band called Heaven and Earth. And then he was in another band called The Great White Cane. So he was just pretty much in these bands for a very short amount of time trying to break through. And either something would happen and the band would collapse upon itself or Rick wouldn't like something and he would leave. Did they have any singles or was he getting any popularity at this time? A little bit. The There was a little note about the Great White Cane. Uh, out, out of all the groups, that was the one I heard the most about. There was a lot of big buzz around the Great White Cane. They merged into another group, but then something happened and Rick decided to leave that band. Right after hmm. they started really, they, they had a, like a like a little club stay. They had people coming to see him and then something just happened and he left. Interesting. It seems like that's already a pattern. Yeah. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Uh-huh. There would be some music made with all these bands and some buzz, but it never lasted long before something happened. Professional's not doing so great for him. He's still playing music, but he's not making a lot of money. So there was even a rumor that for a short amount of time during the 70s, Rick was a little bit of a drug smuggler as well. But I didn't get a whole bunch of information on that. So I just wanted to mention it as a footnote. Huh. Like, you can't make music from singing. You got to make music some other way. We've and all been there. Yeah, he was traveling different borders, going to different countries, coming back with large sums of money. And, you know, then losing it immediately. But he was still doing those jobs. So far, I'm not anti-Rick James. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you can have your opinions on some of the things we talked about dodging yeah, I mean, the I'm, service and running drugs, but at the end of the day, it's not like anything that I would hold against him. Yeah, I think I would probably go about this episode in his life a different way if he was still with us. But uh, this is kind of more of just like, here's the information. How do you feel? You know, which is like yeah. how we do all our episodes, but it we usually are a little bit more, up, at least I'm a little bit more opinionated, but I. I had feelings about Rick James, but more so overall, I was just fascinated with the type of life he lived and how long he got away with the stuff he he did, as far yeah, as like, mean, his health and body. It already sounds like an amazing life. Maybe yeah. not amazing is not the right word, but like, but like it, just growing up. Entertaining. Yeah. Mm. During the same time in the 70s, during a Halloween party slash orgy. And I say that because uh, <laughs> the documentary says it's a party, but Ty James, Rick James's daughter, says, "Now nah, my parents met through uh, met at an orgy." <laughs> and then uh, Seville Morgan, the woman that Rick James came to meet and fall in love with, she says, "Yeah, it was an orgy, but it was organized. <laughs> it was an organized orgy." <laughs> 
I mean, saying it's a party does not mean it's not an orgy. That's true. So Rick James meets Seville Morgan at this Halloween party slash orgy and they fall in love. Rick James says, I saw her and she, like, I walked up to her and I started talking. Um, he said, you want to get out of here? I, uh, she said, yes. I went to her place. And then a few years later, I was still at her place. <laughs> <laughs> That's so it's so weird, though, Mina and Orgy. Yeah, and 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 getting into a, a little multi-year relationship. I mean, but everybody, you know, has their things. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's interesting. Yeah, I, I say it's weird just because you're there for, like, the group dynamic, and then it's like, oh, this one lady, I'm going to take her home. This is my blue jelly rancher. Unfortunately, the love doesn't last too long because James is loving this, like, very high volume but very high volatile lifestyle eventually while uh you know traveling the world and still singing he meets somebody else and him and uh, seville finds out him and seville get into this huge fight and they essentially break up and rick leaves now i say the word breakup because when seville morgan was talking about this on the documentary she said broke up but the way that it goes in the from that point on, it more so kind of seems like Rick James like just left his family, abandoned his family. Oh, because Rick won't see his kids again for years. And I said Ty James was his daughter. He also had a, a son named Rick James Jr. And he won't see these two children for years. So did he move away? Did she move away? Was there a reason? It, I think it was just the infidelity, really. Because um. uh, so there was two documentaries. There was the bitchin documentary, the one that's fully over Rick James's life um, from 2021, and then there was also the unsung documentary, which is only like an hour long about really just the high points in their life. And so Seville Morgan was basically saying that they're together, they have these kids. And then all of a sudden, you know, his behavior has changed and she knows it's because he's met a different woman, specifically a woman, not like one of those, I guess, people who you would cheat on one night and then leave. This is somebody who he had a little bit of a relationship with. And then he kind of like leaves Seville for her is what it kind of seemed like. Damn. How did you just abandon your kids though? And that's just how some people, some people are. Some people just have no qualms about that. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I I don't know. I feel like it's different, though, when you have, like, neither one's right, but when you have a kid with someone and you're not with them. But this man was, like, with her and had these kids sharing the same home. And Yeah. One day he's just gone. Just gone. Before we leave Seville Morgan, I do want to tell you an interesting what what the fuck would have happened story. Or maybe the same thing would have happened. It just would have been more people. So Rick James, during the time he was in California, during the 70s, no, during the 60s and uh, the late 60s into the 70s, he met this man named Jay Sebring, who was like this famous hairdresser. And uh, James and uh, Jay were really good friends. And Jay happened to be really good friends with Sharon Tate. Oh, Jay and Rick being such good friends, Jay invites him to this party that's happening. And Rick is like, yeah, I'll be there. 
Now coming to the day of the party, Seville's ready. She wants to go. She's ready to go to this party, but Rick is hungover. He's hungover and he's tired and Seville's waking him to get ready for this party. And he's like, I didn't want to go. Let's not do it. We'll, we'll, we'll do something some other day. Come to find out this is the famous party of which Charles, uh, Charles Manson murders Sharon Tate and what four other people, including which includes Jay Sebring. I okay, that's why that name sounded familiar to me. That's such a bizarre thing how just one little decision like that can change your life, like save your life. Uh, yeah, Rick James would have been dead, or it would have been who knows what the fuck would have happened. It would have been crazier, I feel like. Uh, yeah, he would have been dead, especially since. I don't know how if you know a lot about the Manson murders. Only know very little. Very okay, well, Manson wasn't there, but it was like his followers who did it. Yeah, they their whole thing about them were well, not the whole thing, but like something that they were doing without getting too much into it was like they were trying. They were talking about like a race war and all that. Mm. So I wonder if you know this black man and was his wife black or? Oh yeah, Seville's black. Seville's black, black. Yeah, if these two black people were there, I wonder how that would have changed it. Maybe it would have been worse. Oh my gosh! Jeez. Yeah, and I, mean, I did. I forgot it was his followers that went up in there. Yeah, and it's already such a horrible thing. I that's one of the ones, the cases that when people just glamorize Charles Manson's like fucking sick. Yeah, I will never get that honestly. Seville and Rick are gone. Uh, are broken up. Rick's gone. This is the mid seventies now. Now Rick goes back to Buffalo to form the Stone City Band. Think of the Stone City Band as his revolution, his heartbreakers, his pips. They're his backing vocal as well as some of the people who help arrange, put together his music. Okay. Now Rick also wanted a certain look, something that sets him apart from all the other people and groups, as well as something that he could stand out with, with his band. So one day he sees this African woman on a plane and she's from the Maasai tribe and her hair is in braids and Rick sees her and talks about how fantastic it is, how beautiful it is. And she in turn shows him pictures of, you know, the people from, her area, her tribe, you know, and how they start off with, you know, the little afros like Rick had at this time. And afterwards, they have those long braids, either that are like curled up or they have the beads at the end. And Rick is like just so enamored. And he's like, well, can you do that to my hair? And she says, yes. And that is the style that you see Rick James for, that he's popular for, is that the the braided bang in front and then the rest braided all the way back down to his back. That's a pretty cool story. Yeah, I thought that was cute. I just so, thought I looked up his hair real fast so I can remember. So you can remember it, yeah. Got them braided back, not the bang. <laughs> pretty iconic still. To the point where even one of his band members from the Stone City Band still wears their hair like that. When you got your look, you got your look. Some people don't change. Talk to uh, Rod Stewart. Rick wanted unity. Think Dream Girl. So he he told all the members of his band, but really mostly just the black members, because 
I didn't see none of the white people with it. But he, <laughs> he told all the Blackstone City Band members to get the braid hairdo as well. And they moaned and groaned because they just didn't understand it. They didn't get it at first, but eventually they got it. They understood it. And then they said soon after they saw everybody with the damn look. Now, eventually, after they came back from Buffalo with the record that they had done, they went to shop it around. They ended up getting signed to Motown with Barry Gordy. And then they started working on their debut album. Now, Rick had a way of doing things. He wanted everybody to be together at all times. He said, that's how we're going to create. That's how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to be successful. So the band created together. They toured together and they lived together in this big mansion in California where they were all making music, but they were also partying all the time, doing high volumes of drugs, having a lot of sex with a lot of different people. But the end result was the end result. And the album Come and Get It was released in 1978 with the lead single, You and I. Shortly after You and I, it was followed up by the also popular Mary Jane. Now, yeah, I, I feel like that one's still iconic. Oh, 100%. I feel like some of these hits were bigger than others, but I also feel like some of these were like low-key, like, it, what was it? I saw a tweet the other day that they were saying like, Everybody says this is a hit and this is a hit, but I know some hood classics that went three times platinum. And it's kind of like that. It's like, I knew about <laughs> you and I and all the other ones, but Mary Jane is the one I heard the most out of any and all Rick James songs. I heard Mary Jane from when I was born to fucking three days ago. <laughs> I, I do kind of feel like, it definitely has a 70s vibe to it, but it is kind of um, timeless as well. Yeah, especially talking about the subject matter. Yeah. So for some people, Mary Jane was, of course, seen as controversial. This is the 70s, albeit going into the 80s, which with further and further into more decades, you know, uh, marijuana starts to get less taboo. But this is still a little taboo saying about it so openly in the 70s but for some mary jane was just a sweet song about a girl you love <laughs> okay and i died laughing at that because i was i i was one of the uh kids that they told me right off the bat even though i didn't really know what weed slash marijuana was somebody said this song's about weed and i was like okay and i'm still listening thinking it's about a person until i got older and i said oh this song about weed <laughs> it's so crazy. You just don't know things. It was it wasn't in that one movie. Um, uh, what is it? Friday. No. Are you talking about how high? How high? That's so funny. I say Friday. You say how high? Interesting. I I've, I've literally only seen how high once. Really? Yeah. That I like Method Man or Red Man. Just not my type of movie. Is it like low key racist of me to think that you've seen it more? Like. Of My course. opinion is that you would have saw it more. Very racist. Oh, okay. You're the racist <laughs> person I've ever known. Why uh, would you say that? I guess you also think I've seen House Party 20 times. Yeah. Exactly. Look at you. Look <laughs> have at you not? No, I've only oh, seen okay. it twice. Now, but but watch when I pull out Selena, I'm the bad guy. But I have, like, so I don't think that's racism. Okay, good thing, because I know you've seen it a thousand damn times. <laughs> Carrie Gordy, son of Barry Gordy and friend of Rick James, even said that at the time when Rick was selling the record, 
95% of the Motown executives had no idea what Mary Jane was even about. You're so innocent. I, I feel that. Like, how stupid are you? Like, how naive are you? But at the same time, was it that common of a name back then? Like, a nickname for marijuana? Maybe, because we're in 2023, but this is 1978. Like, were yeah, they even... So- they're, they're, frame of mind isn't probably even on that right now yeah so maybe they really did it now rick james decides he's gone out the gate with his first album he's not stopping in the span of three years rick and the stone city band put out three more albums damn yeah it's crazy that's impressive they put out busting out of l7 in 1997 which gave us the hit busting out the album fire it up in the same year of 1997 which produced the song Love Gun. And then in 1980, we had the album Garden of Love, which gave us the song Big Time. Now, during this period, he also produced Tina Marie's debut album, Wild and Peaceful. And after the success of Busting Out, the last two albums only went gold. So he's putting out all this content and it's selling it's selling even good but it's not selling great it's not selling like come and get it and it's not selling like busting out it's just going gold so everybody's looking for rick james's next big hit i wonder if that's just because how fast he's pushing them out that also could have been the case if you're stalling slash staggering your releases people aren't just thinking man give me more give me more give me more because you're you're feeding them at a steady rate, but you're just giving it to them so fast that they're like, yeah, this is great, but this, I want something better. This is great. Give me something better. Uh-huh. They're constantly wanting something huge. So you're right. I think that maybe him being such a hard worker in the studio was kind of to his detriment for a little bit. Yeah, it's impressive, but there's a reason most artists go years without releasing a second album, third album. I mean, look at us today. Some people come out with a debut album and you don't hear their second one for like five, six years, if ever. Yeah. Some people come out with an album and they don't give you the visuals. Don't call my girl out. (laughs) Don't call my girl out. Watching all the leaks, all the damn leaks. Me too. You saw what she said about your ass. Uh (laughs) Say fucking wait. (laughs) That's all I need to hear because that meant visuals confirmed Uh so they're waiting for rick's next big hit and boy is it coming now like i had said before rick wants to get right what does he do he goes home to his mama but this time he takes the band he tells the band hey we need to go back to our roots we need to go back to Buffalo and we need to stay in there for a while for this next project that doesn't mean those are the band roots though oh Sorry, little blip. Stone City Band mostly came from Buffalo. Oh, made okay. of James's previous uh like friends around the neighborhood, people he he knew. Then I'm all for it. Go back to your roots. <laughs> that's funny. Like <laughs> we gotta go back to our roots. They're like, bitch, I'm from Connecticut. <laughs> uh-huh. Like that's not my roots. I hate Buffalo. My bad. I did. I did. I left you. I left you hanging on that one. <laughs> so in 1981, Rick James releases his highest selling album to date, Street Songs. Now, when speaking about the album Street Songs, Rick James says, quote, Street Songs spoke of things that happened in the ghetto. It talks about very real subjects and very real things. You know, Black people made me, 
and black people bought tickets and sold out concerts and stadiums. So it was a conscious attempt on my part to get back to the roots of what I'm all about. I mean, that's good. You gotta play for your fan base. That is true. He's, he's basically saying, you know, my albums was good, but they're not great. So I'm going to start from square one and go back to what I know, which is my home life, my childhood, my area. So, oh, so far, I'm on you, Rick's side on all you this. still love Rick. Still love him. I bought oh. by a I Love Rick James t-shirt. I can't wait. So the lead single on Street Songs is Give It To Me Baby. Mm. Now, <laughs> it's a very popular song. I, I ain't gonna lie, it's one of my faves. Followed by the song heard around the world, Super Freak. Super Freak. That, he can't escape that one. Oh, you'll hear it everywhere. Super Freaky Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about that ever since I heard. <laughs> now, a funny story about Super Freak is that it almost didn't make the album. And it was the last song recorded. Apparently, the label wanted one more song when they got Street Songs. And Rick James realizes, hmm, I don't have a poppy song on here. And as a joke... Him and the Stone City Band come up with the concept and song, Super Freak, thinking this is all about some song about like a, a, a white man and how white men seduce, no, how white men get seduced by women. And he even puts on this little accent of a white man that apparently, you know, is mocking how white people talk. And that's why his voice sounds the way it does in that particular song. Oh, okay. Um, but why is it about a white person? Like, I don't get it. I have no idea. Like, literally. He just thought it was funny. Like, literally, they explained the story. They're like, hey, the label wanted one more song on the album. Uh, Rick James is like, well, you know, I want a poppy beat. But this is just a joke. We're just playing around. We're having fun. So he does that. Um. Uh, She's a very, like the, the way he deepens his voice and uh, does the affectations is his way of mocking a white man, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what they said. Oh my God. And I think even, that makes me love this song more. I don't know. Yeah. And the fact is they even talk that. about the success of Super Freak was crazy because that's what really tuned white audiences in with Rick James. But some of the band members were saying one of the reasons they don't like Super Freak is that particularly white audiences had never heard of Rick James. And so they only liked Super Freak. And then after, like, for instance, they would say, you will go to a white party or a white frat party and they'll play Super Freak. And then right after they'll play all the other rock and roll because they only like this one song from this one black artist. And they kind of pigeonholed Rick James into that instead of like caring about the rest of his whole catalog. Yeah. So some of the band to this day don't really care for the song Super Freak, but they realize what a hit it was and how popular it was and how big it made them. I mean, he made that album for the black community, but that song was for the whites. And it was the last one added because it wasn't originally there. Ain't that some shit? I love those stories of, oh, I almost didn't put it on there. It's like, damn. What could have happened? Yeah. And it's such a fun song, I guess. It kind of makes sense of he's doing a white voice. 
It's just funny. Like I'm just listeners, listen to Super Freak and tell me what you think of the voice. Can you hear it? Is he just talking regular? <laughs> Eli, in 1982-1983, Rick James creates the group The Mary Jane Girls. This is a girl group consisting of six members that produce hits like All Night Long and In My House, which I fucking love both of those songs. I remember playing Vice City and hearing All Night Long and bitch, I'm driving in the city all night long until that song ended. <laughs> that's so hilarious it's just such a good one i mean it's dirty i didn't know how dirty it was until like i i, I looked at the lyrics but as a child i didn't give a fuck you want to say some lyrics for us uh let's okay actually i do enjoy that let's let's look up some oh something's got me so excited baby i a feeling i've been holding back so long you got me shook up shook down shook out on your loving and boy, I can't wait to get started loving you. Ooh. And then you got the chorus. I'm going to give it to you. Oh. <laughs> 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 well, you know, that's basically saying, you know, you about to find your partner and you about to give it to him. Uh-huh. So uh, a couple of these women from Mary Jane Girls actually originated from the Stone City Band. So, you know, Rick James saw something in them. Knew he wanted to create this new group. Took a couple of those girls from the Stone City Band, put them in Mary Jane Girls, and then voila, that was what was created. Even though he's creating all this music for himself and others, he still got some controversies around. Now, at this time, you know, Super Freak had came out, the video and everything, but he cannot get his video played on MTV. They're not airing his music at all. And Rick says... Hold on, they're not even airing not just my music, but other Black artists. He, at this time in the uh, press conference when he's talking about it, he was talking about uh, they're not they're not showing my music videos, they're not showing Michael Jackson's, The Commodores, Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie Wonder. Why aren't, these, why aren't they showing these popular Black artists, you know? And those are huge artists. They are huge artists. One of my favorite partial quotes he has when talking about this issue is, quote, this isn't the Wizard of Oz. There are Black people here, and we make music. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's such a weird thing to say. Saying, nah, w Wizard of Oz is white and they make music, but bitch, this is not that. <laughs> this is the whiz. <laughs> but um, that's what he says. It's even funny that apparently uh, after he says this comment, you know, MTV actually starts to play more black musicians' videos. They start to put more black music in their rotation, specifically Michael Jackson. Mm. And um, apparently uh, there was a little excerpt that, you know, Rick James was not happy at, at, about this at first. He called for like a boycott. All black artists who were getting played on MTV needed a boycott because they weren't playing everybody. But eventually that passed and he lets it go. Uh, he even told he told a story about Rick told a story about how he got drunk one day with a with an MTV executive. You know, got drunk. I think Rick asked, like, you know, so what the, what the hell's happening over there? And the executive's like, I'm sorry, Rick. They just they just have a hard on for you. Like, basically, 
you're not getting through. They they're pissed at you. They don't like what you said. It's it's not happening. Oh, uh, because he called them out. They're like, they don't like that. Yeah, we're going to. You're right. So we're going to put some black people on MTV, but not you. Exactly. He he's right, but they're uh, he's right, but uh, he's wrong in their eyes because they don't like the publicity, the bad uh-huh. publicity. So yeah, it was crazy that they said. Well, yeah, we're still not going to play your music, but some of those people you mentioned, sure, we'll get them on. Yeah, because now they can say, oh, we have black artists on there, just it's, not Rick James. And that's exactly what some of the people in the documentary said. They took on Michael Jackson, Prince, and some of those other ones because it validated the story they wanted to tell. And that's so hard if Rick James is calling for a boycott. He's just looking like a bitter Betty now. Like, you're just mad about that they're not playing your music, but there's black artists on there. Yeah, it it was funny that uh, towards the end, Rick James says, like, you know, a part of me hated that I even spoke out about it because it didn't need, it didn't help me. But, you know, it was it was something that I, I needed to say. Yeah, I mean, but he definitely it's from what you're telling me, it seems like he's the one who made that change happen. Yeah, in a way. Then in 1985, Rick James produces the hit of the century, if you ask me. Eddie Murphy's party all the time. <laughs> she like the party all the time. I have a love-hate relationship with that song. I don't know why, but my brother, when we were teenagers, he got like obsessed with that song and he would just play it <laughs> nonstop. Really? Yes. <laughs> and I don't know why he would always play that song and it's so I liked it, and then I started to hate it because he played it so much, but I do like it still. A lot of people talk shit about it, but I like it. Yeah, I was even talking shit about it, but I still like it. It's just one of those, Just, it's just like when I first learned about it, I was like, Eddie Murphy was not singing. And then I saw that video, and I said, Eddie Murphy was for sure singing. And then I just kind of fell in love with it because that fucking chorus, just, it's just good vibes. It really honestly is. Why you tried to hurt me? Okay. Um, and then after that, the timeline is a little unclear, but kind of around this time, you know, in the 1985, maybe in a few, maybe a few years earlier, he actually was reunited with his first two children. Now, uh, the story I forgot goes, about them. I know, of course you did. Just oh like my Rick. goodness, yeah. <laughs> According to Ty James, the story goes that they always knew who their father was. They always knew that Rick James was their father. And so Rick James Jr. would go around specifically around the neighborhood to his friends at the time he was maybe like 10, maybe 11. And he would friends, you know, my dad's Rick James, my dad's Rick James. And Ty James, with the fact that their father isn't in their life, you know, and ain't doing nothing for him. Because Seville says at this time he was not, he didn't know where they were, let alone financially providing for them. And like I said, hadn't seen them in years, left them. Yeah. And so Ty James would tell her brother, you know, stop talking about that. Stop saying that. But apparently one of the last boys that Rick James Jr. had said something to, his father apparently worked security for Rick. So it got back to Rick James that his children were so-and-so and they were saying that they were his children and then um ty says within days they they get a, a private investigator knocking on their door 
And then soon thereafter, they're getting flown to Buffalo, New York to meet their father. So Rick's the one who hired the private investigator? Yeah, it seems like that. It seems like what could have happened is the security guard says, hey, my boy said that uh, this boy is your son. Rick is not, he's he's wary of it. So he hires somebody to basically confirm. And then once it's confirmed, he wants them to meet. Now, guess how the children are? I, I kind of already gave you a hint, but they were uh, just babies when they left. 14 and 12. Basically, they're 11 and 13. I was so close. Now, so close. the good thing is that because nothing else is said, and because Ty talks about further times with her father, Ty James is the only child who's a part of any of the documentaries I watched. None of the other children are. And I want to get into how many children Rick James has at the end and why it's weird. But Ty is the only one who speaks uh, about her father in the documentaries. And um, at least it's implied after they re-meet each other again, that from that point on, Rick James was involved with his children and financially responsible for his children for the rest of you know his time. Now, in 1982, he put out uh, another album called Throwing Down. It came out, and then shortly after, they have the tour. Now, after the tour is done and everything is settled down, Everybody is looking at the figures, and it is noted that while throwing down the throwing down tour was a success, it was nowhere near the success of Street Songs in the Street Song Tour. And Rick James is not happy. Rick is not accepting any of the blame either. He is solely putting all the blame on his record company and their lack of promotion and push of him as an artist. But Unfortunately, Rick did not communicate this in a eloquent or kind way. And after confronting the owner of Motown, was it the owner of Motown Records or like a manager of Motown Records and whipping his dick out and saying, <gasps> you better motherfucking push my record and you better give me some fucking help and you better sell my record. Rick James was done at Motown. He Why did the, he pull out his dick? Because he was Rick James. No, the story goes because it was Ke- it was Kerry Gordy. The story goes before he did that, he put he pushed all the shit off of the man's desk, pulled out cocaine, chopped it up, snorted it, then jumped on the desk, got in the man's face, and then pulled his dick out. Oh my god. Yeah. So all, all through these years, he's been using cocaine. He's been using cocaine, but now we're going to see it go to different heights. Oh, my goodness. Anything else to say about the dick? <laughs> <laughs> that is just... It's like... Okay, I get like you're mad about your album or whatever. You can blame them. But the pulling your penis out is like, why? Yeah, like, yeah. What's the point of doing that? I don't know. And then Carrie Gordy basically says that once Rick James walks out, the the record manager, the record producer, the record owner basically says, Lionel Richie. Basically saying, Rick James is out, Lionel Richie is in. Damn. Yep. That fast, replaceable. That, that's what a dick will do. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a dick will do, bro. He'll change your mind. 
Did he call security on him? Do you know? No, Kerry Gordy didn't say anything about security. He says like afterwards, Rick uh, jumped off the the um, the desk, took the check that was written, and left. Damn. Dick because Swindon. the funny thing is that he was originally coming to the office just to drop off his next CD. He wasn't even there for all that. He was there to drop off his CD and get a check, but it turned into something more. That has to be the drugs. Well, I, I, I would say that the drugs didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> didn't help that decision-making. So, like I said, Rick is out and done with Motown during this time uh, of the late 80s to 90s. Uh, James's drug use went up to a level that increased a whole bunch, especially once he is in like a five-year legal battle with Motown that ends up restricting his chance to uh, release music. What On what grounds? Uh, it it didn't say. It didn't even go into it. So I, I, I just wanted to mention it that apparently he was just restricted in making albums uh, for a short period of time because he was just in litigation with Motown. So even though he walked out of that office that day, he was not really free. And I think that might have been because of how he conducted himself. I wonder if maybe he was under contract for more albums or something. It could have been. And sometimes people will let you out. And then sometimes because people don't like you or they want to teach you a lesson, they'll stall you out. Yeah. And it won't come to any resolution. There's some history with Motown that we haven't even like, I'm actually surprised this is like our first really mention of them. Well, yeah, because if you want to, if, if you want to talk about it, Motown does have both some good it's like some some great stories, but also some shady business practices. Yeah. So hmm. in the late 80s, Rick's drug addiction rose out of control and the demands that his bandmates had about like getting paid and getting credit on certain songs were not met. And so that ended up leaving Stone City members leaving one by one. At this time, were they all still living together? I think a little bit. I think some were maybe still living with Rick. Some of them did have their own houses. But like the main the main point that they made was that um, they were a part of a band who had this huge big leader, Rick James. And they were uh-huh. saying other members of other bands that they saw, uh, their members are buying houses. They're buying cars. They're doing this. They're doing that. Stone City band members only have enough to maybe make the rent. Damn. So they're seeing this pay disparity and they're not getting paid what they're worth anymore. And then they're not even getting credit that they are owed. That Rick is saying, oh, I'll give it to you. Or, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like one band member said, you know, we would ask for our names, not just one name, but all of our names as a credit on this. And Rick would never say no. He would always say, I'm going to get you. I'm going to make sure I do you right. And then it would never happen. Sounds like an egotistical thing. That too. I mean, the drugs, the women, all that will do that to you. Yeah. So this is where we kind of get into some to some shit. Now, uh, Rick says that his drug use was escalating so bad he was spending seven to $8,000 a week on just cocaine. I believe but, it. Uh, and, you know, his finances are okay, but they could be better. Uh, but he gets a little fluctuation, you know, upwards when in 1990, 
uh, a, a person named MC Hammer decides to sample Super Freak with his hit smash, You Can't Touch This. I'm going to sound stupid. I did not know <laughs> that you... Don't say it. <laughs> Let's see where you're going. That you can't touch this <laughs> sampled Super Freak. I was like, oh my gosh, I am blind. <laughs> or deaf. I mean, I know that was the joke, but <laughs> it was just like, I, of course it samples it. For some reason, my, it's like your my brain can make so many connections. It did not make that one. And I felt stupid. But anyway, um, it was so funny because right before MC Hammer samples Super Freak, Rick James is just like other, you know, older men, older musicians where, you know, this rap, hip hop and rap is taking over. It's becoming really popular in the 80s and 90s. But Rick ironically does not like it because it's so degrading to women. How much? Despite, you know, him, you know, treating women like playthings. Okay. But when uh, You Can't Touch This came out and his accountants and lawyers told him how many millions he was making, he uh, he shut the fuck up because he had told everybody he didn't want no rapper sampling his songs. But then when he heard the, the cha-ching, he changed his mind. <laughs> now, let's get into the last part of this frosty, crazy tale. Rick James was married twice. The first marriage was a short-lived one and nothing really came of it. The second one was with a woman named Tanya. The funny thing is, is when Tanya meets Ty James, Rick James's daughter, they are the same age. You want to guess what age? 26. 17. Shut the fuck up. Tanya is 17 when she meets Ty, who is 17. And when Ty sees Tanya and asks her father, hmm, how old is she? Rick yells at her, she's 21. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lie. And guess how old Rick James is? How old? 39. The lying about it? Like, you can't even say it was a different time. It's just the lying about it lets you know he knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, Tanya and Rick have found their match in each other. Tanya even says that she didn't know that Rick was 39 at the time. She did, I guess she didn't know his his age at all. She assumed he was like his, he was 30, his early 30s. I'm like, girl, bullshit, whatever though. You were 17, who, who knows? But she says that her and Rick connected because she was damaged and he was damaged and our damage connected within each other. That's and, not good. Yeah. And that's what I mean by they found their match. I mean, yeah, they started. Oh, sorry. Say, say what you feel. You don't want, you know, you're damaged to be relatable to someone else. That's not a good thing. It's going to trigger all sorts of negative things. Yeah. You're always worried when people say, you know, we, we fit together cause we're both broken. Yeah, like stuff like that. Like, oh, we're so crazy. We both go to there because we're crazy. It's like, mm, that sounds toxic. Yeah, it sounds like it's not going to last long. Something's yeah, well, going to break you apart further. Um, Did they also meet at a party slash orgy? It doesn't exactly say, but I think it is uh, implied that they did meet at a party. Okay. So, yeah, they uh they meet. She's 17. He's 39. Um, 
they start doing his whole lifestyle, but together, the drinking, the drugs, the women. Uh, Tanya even says that Rick, even though he boasted about, you know, all these kinks and being freaky and all this other stuff, he didn't trust a lot of people. So not a lot of people got to touch him, but he did like to arrange things and he did like to watch and stuff like that. So that was kind of more of his scene. And I guess that's what him and Tanya were kind of into during this time. But it starts, it, it goes too far. So in 1991, Rick James and Tanya are accused of sexual assault, forced imprisonment, forced oral copulation, uh, and torturing a girl with a crack pipe. Oof. Now, um, Tanya is now 21 officially at this time. And one thing I did not kind of like is that they also had a seg segment from Ty because there was this woman named Frances Alley who came with these accusations of what happened to her. And Ty James was like, you know, from what I heard, all three of these people were in the room partying and she walked away and she had bruises, but it wasn't nothing like uh, it was the same type of bruises that Tanya had. And then they cut her off. And I was like, that was just a weird spot to put that. Like, is she victim blaming? Why did she say that? If she didn't, she wasn't even there. I don't know. It, it sounds like she's using that one line of she liked it rough. Yeah, I just didn't. I, I was just like, well, Tanya came with bruises and the girl had bruises. So I don't know why she was saying something like something happened to her. Uh-huh. But that's what happens. From from what I saw, they didn't really talk about Tanya whether she got timer at all, but it, it seems like she was more put on probation, little to no any prison time. And the what was going to be the good thing is that unfortunately, Rick was on the way to having a short sentence as well. Um, apparently, even though, well, actually, let me just tell you the story real quick before I get into that. The story is that Francis Alley was hanging out with Rick James and Tanya having sex, doing drugs, and everything was fine. But then Rick suspected her of stealing cocaine. And then when he suspected her of stealing cocaine, he tied her to a chair while she was naked. She, he burned her with a crack pipe. And Tanya was warming up a butcher knife on the stove, <gasps> gave it to Rick, and Rick burned her with that on the inside of her leg. Oh, my fucking God. Yes. And have sorry i'm like speechless um so tanya did she ever say that she was like did this under duress or no the way tanya would describe it in the documentary was that you know this was there was no abuse or harm anything that happened was consensual and even Come rick on. says it too rick says rick doesn't well here's the funny thing rick doesn't say anything about the assault Rick just says, I never forced her to smoke crack and I never forced her to have sex with me. That's all Rick says. Tanya calls it a witch hunt. That's absurd though. Like, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, he could be right in saying that they had sex consensually and they did drugs together consensually. But at the point where he ties her to a chair, okay, that gets a little more grayish area because you know, you could say she liked being tied up or something. Mm -hmm. But burning her with a crack pipe and burning her with a heated up butcher knife, like, no one's going to want that. Like, that's going to leave fucking scars on you. Yeah. 
Even How long if, was she in prison for? Uh, it, it was made to seem like maybe just a day or two, a couple days. Not long. She eventually, you know. I mean, that's long as hell if you're being tortured. No, I mean, like, it wasn't like weeks on end, basically, from what I said. It was days. Oh, my goodness. And now, Carmel, Carmel, Carmen Sims, who is Rick's brother, when asked about the case, he said, yes, that he felt bad that his brother caught this case. But if he thought Rick was capable of it, he says, well, an addict is capable of anything. So I think even Rick's brother has a more level-headed thinking of him. Like, yeah, he was a great person. Yeah, I love him. But let's not act like he couldn't be capable of anything like this. How did she escape? Did they just let her go? I don't know. You might have to look up the more details of the case. So, like I said, this is a terrible case, but Rick is about to get one year in a drug rehab. But guess the fuck what? Another case is picked up with a woman named Mary Sauger, and it's about Rick James assaulting her. Now, this story is Rick goes to a hotel to get away with Tanya. Another woman arrives named Mary. They're together for a couple of days, doing the drugs, having sex. But then Mary and Tanya get into a fight. For some reason, Tanya hits Mary. Mary hits Tanya. But Mary goes to kick Tanya. And apparently, Rick doesn't like that. He involves himself and starts beating this woman. And there's pictures. And she is... She 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 got beat by there's no way around it. He beat her like almost to a pulp, like very bad black eyes. Her whole face is swollen. It looks terrible. Oh, wow. So in the middle of settling one case, he's gets he gets this other case that goes to trial and that just blows everything out the water. All right. And then at the end, he gets sentenced to five years, five months in prison. I don't even think that's enough time. Well, the funny thing is, is that if things would have went wrong with the first case, he could have been in jail for life because some of this at first he was up for a lot of felonies, but they had dropped those felonies to give him that lesser sentence of a drug rehab. So they had that as a baseline. But then when the second case comes, that's when he gets punished more severely. If they hadn't dropped those felonies, Maybe that five years turns into double, if not triple. Yeah. So, yeah. While Rick is inside a prison, uh, Tanya had already given birth to a boy named Tasman. Rick temporarily converts to Islam. He writes to Tanya frequently about how they have to get clean, how they have to clean up their act and be there for their child. And he is released in 1996. Immediately after, he wants to start putting back music, putting out music again and go back to what he knows. So in 1997, he gathers some of his old collaborators from the Stone City Band and such and puts out Urban Rhapsody. Now, this is not really a big hit, but it was more of a critical success. You know, the critics really saw the merit in the music that he was trying to make. But unfortunately, the pop the population as a whole wasn't really into it. Said he was completely sober after prison, which he was, but only for a time. Because he wasn't getting leeway in his career like he used to, he would go back into the lifestyle frequently. 
He would be sober for months, Tanya would say. And then something would happen. He'd go back on the drug. He'd try to be sober for a couple more months. She said she'd never see him sober more than three months. And then he'd get off the wagon, start doing drugs. Basically saying that because he were, was doing such hard drugs for such a long time, his dopamine was gone and could only really be brought back with cocaine. So that's what he would do. Hmm. Now, um, they got married in 1996, but they end up getting divorced in 2002. But she still stays a part of his life. They have that young son together, but she just can't be in the lifestyle anymore. And unfortunately, the early 2000s are not much are not full of a lot of rel relevance or what's the called re revereement for Rick James until 2004. The Chappelle Show sketch with Charlie Murphy, Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories, featuring Rick James. When those skits come out about Rick James in the club, Rick James with the with the couch. Fuck your couch. Uh. <laughs> what the five fingers say to the face. <laughs> that's when he blew back up. Like he gets back into the the uh the zeitgeist, you know, everybody knows who Rick James is. And of course, what does Chappelle say in all the skits? I'm Rick James, bitch. He keeps saying it. He keeps saying it. He's dressed in the attire. He's acting like him. And even some of the band members say, you know, it was good for a while. And then Rick kind of felt like he was maybe being mocked. But then in June, the BET Awards come, the 2004 BET Awards. And there he does this pop-up two, three-minute reunite performance with your girl Tina Marie where they sing Fire and Desire. And afterwards, they go to the podium and present an award. Now, after they present the award and the person speaks, before they go backstage, infamously, Rick James grabs the mic and says to the girl backstage, never mind who you thought I was. I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> and the crowd goes fucking wild. And in the documentary, they made a point of saying, you know, he took that catchphrase that maybe he found was mocking and he made it his own and said it in front of everybody to let you know who the fuck he was. Yeah, because uh, everybody was saying that. Yeah, hate him or love him. It, that's Rick James. He's he's a legend. Uh huh. Unfortunately, this is like the last public performance anybody sees of him. And some people had thoughts, you know. Some people said that it was legendary. They loved that performance. It showed them how classic Tina Marie and Rick James were. Carmen, his brother, has other thoughts. He says he watches that 2004 BET performance and he hates it. He says the voice was gone. Everything was gone. He was just a shell. Do you agree? <sighs> I haven't seen this I, performance. I, I see both. You can tell that both Tina Marie, Tina Marie, well, Rick James more than Tina Marie, because Tina Marie had her own struggles before and then even after we learn if, if you followed her life. But you can really tell with Rick James, it's not the same. He's struggling. He's out of shape. He's nowhere near how he used to look as the Rick James we knew him before. And so the voice isn't as great. But I, as a nostalgia factor, 
as seeing them together, I very much enjoy it and I love it. But I can see what his brother is talking about. Okay. The 2004 BET performance was the last public performance we would ever see Rick James do. Because unfortunately, on August 6, 2004, Rick James died in his Los Angeles home at 56 years old. Now, even though Rick had this very troubling world with sobriety, some people thought he was getting better. But unfortunately, when he died of the heart attack, after they did the autopsy, they did a toxicology as well, a toxicology um, screen, and there were nine drugs in his system when he passed. Xanax, uh, and some of those were Xanax, Volume, no, I always say volume wrong. It's Val, mm -hmm. how do you say it? Valium. Valium, crystal meth, Vicodin, and cocaine. Fucking hell of a cocktail. Yeah. So some people say there's like this conspiracy of like, was, was, mate, was he trying to end it all? Was he tired of this? Was he trying to overdose? And then some people just saying, you know, that's kind of what Rick did. Maybe he just thought he could do what he used to do. And it wasn't the, this isn't the same body. You're not the same person. And his body just couldn't handle it. I can see people saying that he's not doing as many drugs because, I mean, how how much you said he was spending per week just on cocaine when mm -hmm. he was like doing it more. So it's very possible that he was still on drugs. He's just doing less of it. And, you know, he's just able to function like that. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, nobody knows but Rick. But it's just that the all the harm he did to his body throughout the years just didn't help. And so towards the end, when he still wasn't taking care of himself, as well as still doing the drugs, he just couldn't recover like he used to. And I think his body just gave out. I don't think he purposely tried to overdose. I think he, he tried to over-medicate, unfortunately. I mean, in a lot of those drugs, you know, they're kind of opposites of each other stimulus depresses yeah yeah so it could be you know he would try to get up there then try and come back down try to get back up try to get down you know or just try to feel perfect yeah maybe so that's kind of the end of rick james he died there was a lot of legendary people who came to his funeral um jamie fox you know tina marie stevie wonder so he he lived a full life he had a lot of friends and connections but towards the end i think even some of those people who loved him the most just couldn't deal with him as the person so unfortunately you didn't hear or see a lot of them until his death damn he just he had a way of either pushing people away to the point where they didn't come back or pissing people off to the point where they didn't want to come back do you think there's more women who did not come forward? That's a tough call, but I think probably. I'm just saying probably. There was, even a, there was even a lawsuit that came against the Rick James estate in 2020 that was dismissed. So I think it's very much possible. Just to do two of assaults is like, there has to be more, in my opinion. And I thought it was so interesting that the two assaults he was convicted of, he did them both with his romantic partner. Because well, the thing is, if you watch this, if you don't know what happens in the end, 
when you see Tanya talk in the documentary, I'm looking at her. She looks like a regular old person. I'm like, I didn't know you were torturing motherfuckers with Rick James either. She don't. I know. It's weird. Like, that's such a vile thing to do. Like, she's a vile creature. But the only thing that, in my eyes, is, like, kind of defending her is her age. Like, was she groomed? What's the situation there? You're right. That that could be our saving grace of just being so very young and being led by this older man and doing these acts. Older celebrity and giving drugs. All the drugs, all the money, you know? So that is a possibility. You're right. But like I said, she describes this as a witch, a witch hunt. And she's now in her, she's got to be in her, her, her 50s now. Yeah, so it's not like she's apologizing for her owning up to it. Exactly. This episode made me like Rick James more, and then it made me hate him. Like I said, he was just like a Lothario for most of his career, but at the end, it got dark, and it got abusive, especially towards the women in his life. Not only what he, whatever he was doing to himself, it got really bad. Um, but before we end, uh, just to give my sources, I got... Uh, all this stuff from the documentary Unsung, like I talked about, the documentary Bitchin', the um, the Sound of Fury of Rick James, which is on Showtime if you want to watch it yourself. Uh, I also got uh, IMBD and allmusic.com and biography.com. That's it for Rick James, bitches. Very good job. Amazing episode. Thank you. It's actually great to hear you say that. You're the only opinion I care about. Thank you so much. Of course. The most important one, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so we like to end all our episodes with a piece of media that we either want to lift up and celebrate or something we want to kick, push, and spit on. What will it be for you? I love that. <laughs> Thank you. What will it be for you today, Jose? Um, I do want to read Trisha's first. Oh, we have a Trisha Media. Go ahead. We go do. ahead. She says, Jose and Katrina, I'm writing so light in the night to share a piece of media that I love. It's the movie Why Do Fools Fall in Love? It's a movie about the life and death of Frankie Lyman. Mm-hmm. The movie features a bunch of stars, including Halle Berry, Lawrence Tate, Vivica A. Fox, and even Little Richard. And when I was younger, I always got Little Richard and Rich James confused, but that was me. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. The movie really focuses on three marriages Frankie had and the brain, and the breakdown of those relationships until he his overdose. The woman goes to court to determine the real Miss Frankie Lyman, and the tea is hot and spilled everywhere. It's got drama, comedy, and tragedy, and I love it. As always, thank you for being you. Yeah, that's a good movie. Uh, the funniest thing is that Trisha is the one who showed that to me as a child. I had never seen it before she showed. And it is I, when I, the first like few times I tried to watch that movie, it always came on TV, and I always caught it like halfway through. And I was, I was always so confused. I did not know what was going on, but I did like it once I finally like watched it all the way through. Yeah, my part was always like, Frankie Lyman, why are you always somebody different? You different with this chick, this chick, this chick? Shit. Is anybody the real? Are you the real Frankie Lyman? I remember I really did love it, but I don't remember a lot of it now. Yeah, I probably would need a refresher. I remember, you know, the meat, the big meaty parts, like who won, who were the wives, what he did with each wife, but I don't remember exactly 
but yeah. it's a good movie. And like she said, a star-studded cast. Yes, very star-studded. Do you want to go first or should I? Um, I mean, I can go first real quick. I don't mind. Okay. My go right ahead. It's going to be a song. Like it always is. <laughs> Lately, yeah. <laughs> I can't help myself. So, to say, which one do I want to do? Um, I will. Did I already do that one? Shit, 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 shit. Okay, I'll, I'll just do this one. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of different type of music. Uh, I've just been like, I even created a rando playlist because it's just been random. So I've circled back to Tupac, and I've been listening to Lord Knows. Now, this is not the most peppiest song but it's just very much expressive and very much just like really deep and really raw and I just really I just really enjoy the way Tupac raps about it what he's saying unfortunately I very much identify with the chorus at times uh so maybe if you're feeling a little low don't listen to it (laughs) but um lord knows is it's it's Tupac lord knows if I hadn't said that probably didn't but it, the song called Lord Knows, and it's just a great song, and uh, I love it so much. It's probably top 10 favorite Tupac songs. Um, I will tell you this. If I like a rapper, nine times out of 10, my favorite songs are not the, like, shake your ass songs. I like the ballads. I like the deepness, unfortunately. That's just how I am. So... That's what I've been listening to. Now, if you real quick want a, a rap song that came out that I fucking hate, that is just so stupid. It's like a cash grab. Is that Drake song, Search and Rescue. It's not a terrible song. It's not as bad as Staying Alive, which was a fucking dumpster fire. But he uses a Kim K sample, which is like, why are you, why are you using a Kim K sample? Are you still on this Kanye shit? Oh, and yeah. He has this dumbass line where he says express and then the next next line he says i american express yeah yeah yes my love for you what the fuck is that (laughs) it didn't rhyme it didn't make sense and literally when i heard that song i i stopped no yeah we've we've mentioned drake before on here i i feel a lot of his music now is cash drab slash Trying to get like the meme attention. He's linked into that a lot. Very much so, to the point where it's like, Jesus, I'm not even listening to this for really enjoyment. I'm listening to this to hope it's good or to shit on it. So, yeah, I feel I think like it's very declined. He's before, fair. he used to have a lot more songs that seemed organically like they would become memes. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that was in his mind what he wanted to do, like make it go viral, but it's just very blatant that that's what he's trying to do now that's good all. medias thank you i will not be listening to drake <laughs> good <laughs> uh, my media for today i guess would be eat pray love uh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i was just coughing i wasn't laughing <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in forever, but me and my sister were obsessed when that movie when it first came out. Really? Uh-huh. I don't know why. It, my sister still loves, what's that, um, Liz Gilbert, who it's based off of. She would always buy her books and stuff like that. But we both really loved it. And I mean, I guess we took away different things from it at that time. 
I was getting into meditation, so like it was all about like meditating and a day of silence and all that. So I like really liked it. Yeah. Recently, I got back into meditation, so that's what makes me think about it. Mm. Uh, okay. But it's a. Uh, I I do want to go back and revisit it because I haven't seen it in years. Because you know I I'm kind of anti self help and she's like a self help person now, so I I don't know how I would view it now, but. At the time, I liked it. I never read the book, but me and my sister both loved it. And I even did <laughs> a day of silence one day, and we went out to eat, and I was trying to point to the waiter, like, what I wanted, and my sister's was like, just fucking talk, just talk, just talk. <laughs> I can't. And she would just, she would just do stupid shit to try to talk, and I was like, I'm not talking today. Like, I was just like, you know, nod my head no. Well, but that's my me. Eat, pray, love. Did you watch it? No, and I love Julia Roberts, but that was just, uh, I don't know. And now I feel like I never can because Viola Davis mentioned it as her being the white girl best friend. And so it's problematic media now. Oh, Viola Davis is the yeah, white girl best friend? Ain't she? No, is that like, is that what you meant by the quote? I mean, isn't she in Eat, Pray, Love, Jose? You don't remember her in it? No, I. That's problematic she, as well. She was in it, but she had a very small role, I believe. But I told you, I don't remember. It's been years. It's 2010. That's 13 years. Mm, don't remember don't even... the blacks. Mm. <laughs> this is my racist episode. <laughs> well, not how much would you love Rick James? <laughs> I did not love Rick James. Rick James, I felt like he had an interesting life. That okay, I would now love you say you didn't love him when you said you loved him at the beginning. I mean, I think he had an interesting life. But I do think that he was a monster for doing what he did. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. You can't say you let him in after you heard that shit. Yeah. Like, and yeah, it's just, I was going to go listen to his music after this, but I think I'm going to let this digest more. Yeah, me too, because unfortunately, this is why I know I'm trash. Uh, I, never mind, I'm not even going to say that. No, say I don't, it. I don't say want, it. no. Speak your truth. I love those songs. <laughs> they are good songs. And, and I, think I think he was bad. I'm no, no doubts about it. I can't, I can't say that last sentence. The point is that. I'm going to be a terrible person and I'm still going to listen to Rick James. That's the one person who I will still listen to. I've said, it before. I've said it before. Once they die, I'm like, okay, cool. I can listen to you again. Oh, oh, I forgot that is your rule. Well, I'm going by Jose rules. <laughs> yeah, he's dead. I guess, never mind. I won't say that, but he's dead. So I've, I feel like a lot of the popular artists back in the day were shitty, horrible people. So it's something that we have to like kind of deal with. Yeah, it's like a minefield dealing with these motherfuckers. Yeah, I think it was just like the, especially the men. It was like their environment of you're a rock star. You can do what you want to who you want when you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And no one can tell you shit about it. And it's like nowadays you have people can express their voice by going on social media, making posts about it. 
But back then, I feel like it was a lot harder for women to get their stories out there. That's what makes me believe that there possibly might be more stories. Yeah, yeah. It, and and he was doing, all, just like so many of the artists, we're just doing this during a wild time. Like, I didn't mention it, but Shaka Khan had a Vlad TV interview talking about how, you know, back in the day, her, Natalie Cole, and Rick James was all doing drugs at the same place. You know, I only like a few handful of Shaka Khan songs, but I just have such love for her for some reason. I fucking love Shaka Khan. I, she, I, I, was, I was raised on Shaka Khan. It's, I mean, with Tell Me Something Good, that's all you need. But Through the Fire, that's all you need. Oh, Ain't nobody. Yes. But okay, let's stop. Let's stop. Let's end it. <laughs> let's end it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tell us if you're pure. Are you okay? <laughs> yeah. My, my neighbor's shower turned on and it like distracted me. Thank you so much for listening. Tell us if your opinion of Rick James has changed. Did you know about these allegations before? Do you believe them? Do you believe what Tanya says that it was a witch hunt? Mm-hmm. Let us know. Email us at saveyoursorry at gmail.com. Our Instagram is saveyoursorry, spelled just like the podcast. And our Twitter is saveyoursorry. The your is spelled with a U-R instead of the actual word. And leave us five stars if you can. Thanks. It's been wonderful. Bye. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick James. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs>